Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm honored to be in dialogue with Peter Harmson. Peter holds a PhD in China studies. He is the Asia correspondent for the weekly newspaper Weekend Avisen in Denmark. We will be discussing his newly published book, Bernhard Sindberg, The Schindler of Nanjing, published in Havertown, Pennsylvania, by Casemate Publishers 2024. Peter, I'm honored and blessed to be in dialogue with you today. Well, I'm honored to, to be talking to you as well. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? Well, I uh, grew up uh, living in different parts of Denmark, uh, moving around a little bit because of my dad's work. Uh, he was a high school teacher, teaching at various high schools in Denmark. And also for two years during my childhood, he um, he was teaching in uh, in Greenland. So I spent uh, two years from I was nine until I was 11 uh, in Greenland. So I think... That might have been the, the maybe the most formative experience of of my early life to actually live in a completely different environment for two years and learn about um, a completely different culture, uh, the Inuit culture, and also learning a little bit of the language. I, I think that kind of like started a an interest, a basic interest in in learning about the world and about different cultures uh, in me. Um, later on, I got more interested in in, in in East Asia, China, especially, and also Japan. So that was kind of like the direction that I was moving towards when I got a little bit older, like my my, my teenage years. <clears throat> and then after completing my my bachelor degree at a Danish university in, in political, majoring in political science and minoring in, in Russian language, I decided to uh, to go to East Asia and uh, basically be a, a backpacker for a, for a couple of months. Well, those couple of months turned out to be 25 years. I essentially lived in East Asia for 25 years until about a decade ago, uh, working and, and studying at the same time, uh, eventually becoming a, a, a correspondent in based in Beijing for various uh, foreign news agencies, uh, including Bloomberg and uh, the French news agency AFP. So that, that's a little bit of my my profession about my professional background. Then over the past decade or so, I've started writing books, and in my books, I'm, I've been focusing very much on um, on East Asia in the 1930s and 1940s, two very uh, two essential decades, I think, for understanding East Asia today, the direction it took um, after 1945. I think to to understand these. Uh, the situation today, you really have to also understand what happened in the 1930s, 1940s, and places like Japan and, and China. That That's what I've been mostly writing about um, uh, as, as an author. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Well, uh, this book, uh, Sinberg, uh, is about a, a, a person who I think should be much better known to, uh, to, to the world. Um, he, he was born in Denmark in, in 1911 and uh, um, eventually gravitated towards uh, East Asia, living in Shanghai and, and, and China for, for several years in, in the 1930s. 
uh, ending up in 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 the uh, capital of China at the time, uh, Nanjing, in late 1937, uh, at a time when uh, Nanjing was occupied by the uh, by the Japanese army and subjected to uh, uh, a reign of terror. Uh, to to put it, uh, I think, in 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 pretty uh, accurate terms. Uh, his his role in the, in this in this period was to protect uh, Chinese um, civilians and uh, POWs from uh, from the um, from the atrocities committed by by, by the Japanese army. Um, so so th th this is like a it, it's it's an amazing story that I heard about the first time at, uh, at around uh, the turn of the century, like around the year two thousand. Uh, when I was working as as a journalist in in Beijing uh, for the French news news agency AFP, uh, he, he suddenly like turned up in 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 some Chinese newspaper reports, uh, described as as kind of like the Danish savior of the uh, of, uh, of of Chinese civilians during during the Nanjing massacre in 1937. So of course, as being a Dane myself, I was um, I was very interested in 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 this in this person and. and and his background, like what what put him in that that particular situation, so, I mean, I immediately saw, of course, there was there was the topic for a book right there, but you know, I, at the time I was like a full time correspondent for, uh, in Beijing at a particularly busy time in in Chinese history, so there was like simply no 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 time left for me to write the book at the time, but, I had this interest, basic interest in 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 Sinberg, um, starting at in around the year two thousand and and kind of like building up over the ensuing years as I kind of like collected more information on the side. Every time I, I saw him mentioned, uh, either in the Chinese media or in, in historical sources that I was reading for other purposes, I, I kind of like put it aside to, to just for, for the sake of having it for, in, for, for, for this, this book I wanted to write uh, eventually, which, which I then uh, did many, many years later around uh, 2018, 2019. Um, that's when I wrote the uh, the Danish version of the book, uh, simply because at, at that time I I had a period where I had enough time on my hand to to be able to devote enough time to um, to to to, to uh, prepare this book. What is your book's contribution to the history of modern Danish foreign relations? Well, I think it. Uh, Sinberg. Uh, maybe I should just like maybe take a step back and and just like quickly like summarize like Sinberg's uh, um, Sinberg's story so so basically he was like a he was a, a pretty average uh, Danish guy the um, who who uh, like a sail, sailor among other things who ended up in 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 in, uh, in Shanghai and then Nanjing in, in 1937 he, he was sent there uh, to Nanjing uh, just just a few weeks before the uh, Japanese army advanced to, to Nanjing. Uh, he was sent there with a very specific purpose. Uh, he was sent by a, a Danish company to look after its investments in, in the Nanjing area and make sure that uh, there was like no damage done to, uh, to its, its, uh, its plant uh, in, in the Nanjing area where, uh, in, in, those, uh, in those hostilities or, or that, that, uh, that everyone expected what would happen like once the, the Japanese army reached the Nanjing area. So he was sent to this, it's, it was like a cement factory run by a, built by a Danish company. And he was sent there to basically be a supervisor, just make sure that um, the Japanese army would, would pass by without 
doing any damage to to the Danish property. So that that was his job. Um, and he, he arrived uh, just a, a few days before the uh, Japanese uh, head of the Japanese army, which was marching towards Nanjing from from Shanghai, which it had already occupied at the time. Uh, so basically, his his uh, his job was was pretty straightforward. He was just there to make sure that. Um, the, the the factory gate was was closed and no one was allowed inside. So you know it's it was a maybe a, a dream job for someone without too many ambitions in life. You know just sit there, um, mind your own business, make sure nothing happened to 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 the property, and then just let history pass by. But then, um, and 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 one thing that that, that was crucial, um, the moment he arrived at at the plant, he hoisted the the Danish flag over the plant. Uh, there was also some uh, German investment in the plant and a supervisor sent by the German side, a, a German national also raised the um, the German flag, which of course at the time, 1937, was the, the swastika flag. So you had like the Danish flag and the German swastika flag uh, flying over the, the plant at the time when the, when the Japanese arrived, just to signify that this was, to signal that this was a foreign property that was not to be violated by the Japanese. And the Japanese respected that. Um, they might not have known what the Danish flag stood for, but uh, of course they, they probably realized that it was like some kind of European country. And of course they knew what the swastika flag was and, and definitely did not want to get into trouble with the Germans. So they, 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 let, they let the factory be and just pass by. And, and of course um, the, the Chinese civilians in the area also noticed that this this area was uh, delib deliberately left alone by, by the by the Japanese, and uh, um, during the first days of the Japanese occupation, they 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 converged to uh, around this this uh, this cement factory, like setting up uh, basically a camp just outside the factory gate, uh, no knowing that this was probably a relatively safe safe place to be. Uh, Sinberger. Until then, had been like fairly inactive. Um, he had simply watched these uh, Chinese uh, civilians, basically refugees, setting up, uh, uh, setting up uh, this camp outside the factory gate without uh, doing anything, um, either to dispel them or like help them. But then um, there was like this crucial period, um, a few days after the Japanese invasion, when when the when the when the Chinese camp reached uh, a, a certain size that he decided rather than just stand by and just watch um, what was going on, he decided to, to, to step up and uh, proactively help these Chinese refugees. Um, for example, by um, opening up the uh, factory clinic to um, people among the Chinese who were injured or, or had fallen sick because of the uh, terrible, con terrible conditions in, in the camp. Also by um, making sure that there was enough food for the refugees, and and also and and this is the most the most crucial thing that he did. Uh, occasionally, uh, uh, Japanese uh, soldiers in in small groups turned up at the refugee camp, uh, mostly looking for for women uh, to you know to 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 uh, to rape. What what Sinberg did in this uh, in these situations was to to step out of the factory, holding a Danish flag. And uh, barring the Japanese from entering the the, the Chinese refugee camp, it, it's hard for us today today to understand how 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 courageous this uh, this action was. I mean, he was unarmed, just 
the only thing he, he had was a Danish flag in his hands, um, challenging the uh, the Japanese army, of course, like uh, armed to the teeth, uh, and still getting away with it. That he had some kind of like inner personal authority that uh, kind of like made the the Japanese shy away. Um, th this is uh, testified in 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 a lot of uh, testimony uh, by uh, Chinese uh, eyewitnesses from the time. Uh, Chinese who were interviewed after the war, who, who all told the same story about this blonde foreigner from some remote uh, European country who had who had helped them uh, at the risk of his his own life uh, during this, this this time of danger. So so this was kind of like this this crucial uh, this crucial role that that Sindberg was playing in the Nanjing area during these uh, really dark weeks of late 1937, early 1938. That, that period that period that later has been known as as the rape of Nanjing um, and and uh, basically the story I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, to describe in my book so to, to return to your question um, what it says about uh, the history of, of Danish foreign relations I think his his story maybe reflects some like basic values that we uh, hold dear in Denmark one of them is, um, humanitarian action, uh, respect for human life, uh, standing up to um, to tyranny. Um, at least th this is kind of the um, maybe the self-image that we, we 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 have of ourselves, and also the the image that we try to project to the outside world. Very often, it's of course a bit of a it's 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 a bit of an idealized image, and um, in reality, Danish conduct has has not always uh, lived up to these high standards. But I think in this very specific instance of like Sinberg's behavior in the Nanjing area during these, uh, uh, these terrible uh, months uh, of 1937, 1938, I, I think we really did see someone actually living up to, to these uh, Danish ideals. What are the primary themes in your book? What story and stories does your book tell? Well, I think... Uh, Maybe the most interesting, what, what really interested me about uh, Sinberg's story is that, you know, he's this average Joe, and I mean, really, literally, completely average in, in every uh, imaginable respect. I mean, even if you look at, um, at, at his, uh, uh, his physical size, if you look at the statistics from, uh, uh, from Denmark from the late 1930s, and you look at the average height, um, you, you have statistics for people... Um, uh, doing national service, so you have a pretty good idea about like how tall were uh, young Danish men at the time, and he was the exact size of, of Danish men at the time. I don't know exactly what the uh, equivalent is in, in feet and inches, but uh, around uh, 173 centimeters. So he was completely average, even in in physical appearance. In addition to being average in terms of his educational background. Uh, in in also in, in terms of his professional experience, there's just like nothing remarkable about him whatsoever. He was just you know one out of millions. And and what I, I thought was really fascinating about his story was that placed under the right conditions, he was in a, he was able to find a completely a completely different side of himself, uh, like some kind of inner strength and inner courage that he had no um, had no idea was there. And no one who knew him either knew was there. It was it it it, it was it was it was a, a sort of his, an aspect of his personality that 
had uh, been lying dormant inside of him until uh, the age of uh, of 26 when he was suddenly put in this situation in, in Nanjing. So, so I, what is really fascinating about history, I think, is that um, inside some of us, people who might look completely average when they are put in, in everyday average situations, uh, in, in some of us, there's a, like a, a hero lying dormant, ready to, to emerge. Not in all of us. Many of us, most of us were probably in the situation like uh, Nanjing in 1937 with the Japanese army approaching. Many of us would probably get on the train or get on the boat and and uh, get out of uh, get out of there as soon as possible. But he, he decided to stay there and, and, and help uh, people who were in severe um, need of, of, of his assistance. Um, so there's... Um, in, in some of us, a few of us, uh, a tiny minority, the, 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 there's, the, there's a hero inside waiting to come out. So the, I think that that's, that's, that was the, maybe the most interesting part of the story. Can you describe the course of events that transpired in the Nanyang massacre? How did it specifically unfold? Well, um, it was, uh, in, uh, it was uh, a few months into the, um, the uh, full-scale Sino-Japanese war that had started in, in July of that year in, in the Beijing area and then gradually uh, uh, progressed further south uh, until uh, culminating in, in the Battle of, of Shanghai from August to uh, November 1937, uh, a battle that resulted in complete victory for the Japanese side. After the, after the, um, the triumph in, in Shanghai, the Japanese uh, uh, field officers in coordination with the, the decision makers back in Tokyo were discuss, discussing for a while what to do next. Should they just, um, uh, sh should, should they rest on the laurels or should they move on and, and try and, and, and strike a decisive blow to the, uh, the Chinese uh, side by moving uh, inland uh, towards Nanjing, which was, um, which, which was about uh, a day's travel away uh, by, by train. So after a few days of deliberating back and forth, the Japanese side decided, okay, we're going to move um, west from Shanghai to, the, to, to, to Nanjing and, 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 and seize the Chinese capital and uh, possibly uh, strike a, a devastating blow to, to, to the, the Chinese side that might cause the entire Chinese regime to, to, to fall apart. So that, that, was, uh, that was kind of the, the, the basic Japanese strategy at the time to, to um, to move west and 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 take Nanjing, um, and and the campaign that unfolded in in the weeks after this decision was uh, pretty similar to what had happened in Shanghai. Uh, every time a uh, Japanese and Chinese uh, meet met each other in the field, the Japanese prevailed because of uh, uh, because of better equipment and also better training, and the um, the Chinese side shrank back. So it was like one Chinese defeat after the other until. Um, in December 1937, the uh, Japanese uh, stood at the gates of Nanjing. Uh, Nanjing at the time uh, was surrounded by uh, um, a, a, a tall, several miles long uh, medieval uh, wall. It actually still stands there and, and uh, is, is pretty impressive when you, are, when, when you, when you stand on, on top of the wall. It, 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 looks, it looks like a, an impregnable fortress, but even that, was not enough to, uh, to to hold the Japanese back. Um, after a, a few days of, of fighting in the uh, in, in the suburbs of Nanjing, the uh, Japanese were able to penetrate 
the wall and uh, spread spread into the city and, uh, and 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 take the city within just a few hours of, of battle uh, basically um, basically the the, the Chinese uh, army uh, that was prepared inside the city simply simply disappeared into the surrounding countryside or across the uh, the Yangtze River which uh, um, which flows by by Nanjing so it was again a, a complete triumph for the Japanese army, similar to the uh, the, the victory in, in Shanghai uh, a month earlier. Then what what happened after that was uh, co complete uh, chaos. The, uh, the, the 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 Japanese officers uh, lost control of, of their troops, which uh, decided on 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 their own initiative to fan out into the streets and and. Uh, Carry out looting and uh, raping and uh, random violence. At the same time, uh, in a parallel development, the uh, Japanese army also uh, started rounding up um, what, whatever whatever uh, former Chinese soldiers that could they could find. Uh, eventually, just pretty much catching everyone of of military age, every every Chinese male of military age, whether he was in uniform or not, uh, rounding them up. Uh, in, in in big groups and then basically beginning to uh, kill them in in a systematic manner. Uh, one of the ways they did was, that was like, to tie them up in in big big clusters and drag them down to the to the banks of the Yangtze and uh, machine gun them, uh, kicking the the bodies into into the into the river. Um, in in that way, tens of thousands of of, uh, of Chinese were killed in the, in the first days of, of the the Japanese occupation. So this was this was how the the, the, um, the what, what was later known as as the rape of Nanjing unfolded. On the one hand, this systematic uh, killing of uh, of uh, Chinese uh, POWs or suspected POWs, and at the same time, this more or less you could say more uncoordinated <clears throat> um, uh, these uncoordinated atrocities, the looting and the rape. Of um, uh, of the Chinese civilian population carried out by by uh, small gangs of, of of Japanese soldiers who were not under any kind of control by their officers. Can you describe the course of the Second Sino-Japanese War between 1931 and 1937? How did things reach this point? How did the conflict deteriorate to such a nadir as to render the Nanyang Massacre a reality? Well, the, the the root of the problem was uh, the the Japanese ambition of of having an empire similar to the empires that uh, the Western nations had. The, the Japanese thought, okay, we we need we need uh, they, they wanted a, a modernized society, and, and a modernized society at that time meant a parliament, um, a modern army, a modern educational system, and also a modern empire. The problem was like most most parts of the world had already been taken by that time, and the only uh, the only the only areas really left for the Japanese if they if they did want an empire of their own was uh, the uh, Asian mainland, um, and more specifically uh, China uh, on the other side of the ocean. Um, so beginning in um, in the 1920s and uh, early 1930s, the um, the, the Japanese army, uh, sometimes in coordination with Tokyo, but very often also simply uh, acting on its uh, on its own initiative, uh, started establishing um, an empire in 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 in, 
uh, what is today uh, Northeast China. Uh, the, the three uh, Northeastern provinces of, of modern China were called uh, Manchuria at the time and were occupied within just a few weeks by the Japanese army in uh, 1931, 1932, which was kind of like the beginning, beginning of, of the um, Sino-Japanese uh, confrontation of the 1930s. What, what happened in 1931, 1932 was not, uh, was not officially war. Uh, it was more, uh, well, it was like conflict on, on a more, uh, uh, um, in a more unofficial sense. But still, it was like low-intensity conflict that never completely petered out over the next few years. Like what we saw throughout the 1930s was a complete or uh, uh, constant tension between the Japanese up in the northeast, pushing against the, the Chinese, uh, pushing further and further south, um, grabbing um, more and more land from the Chinese, uh, often unofficially without officially... Uh, uh, sub subduing these territories or turning them into colonies, but simply um, by having a, a strong uh, military and, and also commercial presence. So you, you saw this like constant Japanese push against the Chinese until uh, happening throughout the 1930s, until 1937, when um, uh, domestic, uh, domestic dissatisfaction uh, with the Chinese uh, regime and its ability to uh, or inability to, uh, to to challenge the Japanese, kind of like pushed the uh, the Chinese government under the leadership of, of Chiang Kai-shek to 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 really make a stand against the Japanese, which they did in the summer of 1937 in in the Beijing area, um, when when a relatively small incident uh, known known as as the Marco Polo Bridge incident near Beijing. A, a small, a small armed clash between limited forces uh, of Chinese and Japanese gradually uh, spread and erupted into to full-scale war, uh, uh, eventually um, engulfing not just northern China but but all of China, all the way down to to, to Shanghai, uh, where, where the battle unfolded in 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 the fall of 1937. Can you tell us about the Falstria vessel? Why is it noteworthy? Well, it was uh, the, the the ship that brought Sinberg to to China the first time, and uh, you could say it, it brought him to China in in characteristic fashion. Uh, when he uh, when he arrived in 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 China on board the Falstria, he was actually in in chains. The reason was that uh, a few days before um, uh, before arrival in Shanghai, like Sinberg was was a sailor on on this ship, and. Um, Kind of like the an, an unruly type, you no, know, not maybe not the, the the guy you would want to have work for you as 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 a boss in any kind of capacity. Um, uh, kind of grumpy and uh, um, and uh, opinionated, uh, and uh, eventually uh, um, ending up in a, in a in a fist fight with one one of his superiors um, while while the uh, while the ship was was still at sea. So um, he ended up uh, being detained, uh, put put in put in handcuffs, and uh, locked up in in a, in a room in a, in a in a cabin on on board the ship until it arrived in in Shanghai. Uh, that was um, uh, 1934, as far as I remember. Um, so so what is characteristic is uh, of, of this is like it, it shows uh, Sinberg's uh, unruly temper and his uh, disdain of authorities. 
so it, it kind of like had some of the the, the seeds of, of the the man that he was going to become a few years later um, once uh, he was faced with uh, much much more uh, serious conditions with, with the Japanese uh, invading uh, Nanjing. Who did you write this book for? Who do you consider your ideal reader and imagined audience? Well, I write mostly for people with an interest in, in history and people with uh, a curiosity about aspects of history that they didn't know about. Uh, so in a way, you could say maybe I'm writing for people like myself. Uh, I, I write. I like to read history books about about things that 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 uh, take me by surprise um, about events that um, I didn't had no idea had taken place. Uh, to, 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 to give just a, one example, I think one of the most interesting parts of World War II is, is, is the um, short uh, border war between um, uh, the, the French colonial empire and the kingdom of Thailand in early 1941. I think it's just interesting because it's 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 something that you'd never read about in the standard histories of World War II, um, and 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 similarly, uh, I think Sinberg is is the kind of of, of book uh, that that will give you uh, insights into aspects of history that you might never have heard about otherwise. For example, in the, in this case, about a an average Danish guy ending up uh, saving thousands of Chinese uh, in the middle of of the Second uh, Sino-Japanese War. Can you comment on Denmark's policy and attitude toward the Second Sino-Japanese War? What kinds of relations did Denmark have with China and Spain? What was the spectrum of opinion regarding this conflict within Denmark? Well, uh, Denmark's uh, primary interest in, in China and, and East Asia as a whole at the time was of a commercial nature. Uh, Denmark is, uh, of course, a, a seafaring nation, and one of our biggest industries, both both, both back then and today, is, is shipping. So, um, uh, sh shipping was 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 a was a big thing in 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 East Asia for Denmark uh, for Danish commercial interests at the time. Also, um, telegraph uh, uh, equipment was. Uh, what was uh, sold on a fairly uh, large scale by Danish companies in, in China at the time. So it was basically a, a commercial relationship more than a political one. Like Denmark at the time had very little political interest in what was going on in China and Japan, only to the extent that it affected their commercial interests. And you can also see that if you uh, read some of the dispatches that Ch Danish diplomats wrote back to Copenhagen about the... Um, the early stages of the Sino-Japanese War, uh, there is um, relatively little interest in uh, in the conduct of, of the, the Japanese army, the atrocities carried out by the Japanese army against the Chinese civilians. I think, uh, to, to, to put it in very cynical terms, I think simply because it, it didn't really have an impact on, on Denmark's uh, commercial interests in China at the time. Uh, so whereas you you can see like some other some other European nations, for example, Sweden, at a relatively early date, described the uh, Japanese authorities committed against the uh, the Chinese uh, civilians, possibly with an um, with the intention of of uh, getting the Swedish government to react in some kind of international forum, for example, the uh, League of Nations. Um, you you don't see any uh, very little of of that uh, from um, in the dispatches of the uh, 
Danish diplomats. So that's probably a, um, a source of some embarrassment for me as, as a Danish citizen to, to uh, observe that there was relatively little, little interest in the humanitarian aspects of the war and much bigger interest in how this war was going to affect uh, Danish commercial interests. What discoveries about Bernhard Sindberg surprised you most? Well, uh, again, I think the most important or the most interesting part was was just the fact that he was this completely average guy who uh, suddenly found some uh, inner resources that he didn't know was there. I mean, that, that was um, that, that was not the story I, I knew about him when I started out um, my, my research into his life. Well, at the time, what I knew about him was that he was this like Schindler-like uh, figure who had helped the uh, Chinese civilians in the hour of in the hour of danger uh, during the war. It was only later, as I as I dug into the uh, various sources to his life, that I realized that the the more fundamental story about him, and the, the more the story that maybe said something more general about the human condition, was the fact that there was this this average guy, average probably also in terms of IQ, in terms of physical stature, who suddenly um, found some uh, really extraordinary qualities inside him when, when it really mattered. What interconnections are there between this book of yours and previous scholarship you've undertaken on the Second Sino-Japanese War? But you could say that I'm, I'm going from the macro to the micro level with, with this book. Uh, my previous books were um, were about, uh, about the... Um, um, about the uh, the beginning of, of the Sino-Japanese War uh, on a very like uh, large canvas, uh, talking about what the, the uh, decision makers at the highest level, uh, politically and militarily, what they what they talked about and what they decided, and also what what kind of, what the effects were on the front lines uh, with huge armies uh, clashing uh, along broad fronts. So it was all uh, at a very macro level. Um, even more so when a few years later I, I wrote books about the um, war in the Asia Pacific, where I I broadened the broadened the um, perspective from just not not just looking at China but looking at the entire um, entire region, including uh, everything from from uh, northern Japan to the to to to, uh, to Australia. So this was all uh, very macro, uh, and and then you know it's almost like. When you take uh, binoculars and turn them around, and you 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 suddenly start uh, seeing things in a completely different scale. When I st when I looked into this book um, about Sinberg, it was at the uh, at the micro level, like the, uh, the 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 most micro that you can imagine, just uh, the experiences of of one person. So it was like turning the perspective up upside down. So looking at the same events, but looking at um, the impact they had on just one person as opposed to the impact that these events had on, on millions of people. How have contemporary Danes remembered or forgotten Bernhard Sindberg? It seems like he's uh, remembered every five years or so when there's uh, some, uh, um, some, some incident or instance that uh, suddenly makes him uh, interesting for, 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 for the public. I mean, he's not like Hans Christian Andersen, whom we always remember you know um and uh who, who's who's uh whose celebrity status is is uh firmly established in in the danish mind uh for, for sinberg it's 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 something uh, um 
it's it's a person that we only remember um, when 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 something special happens. For example, in 2019, uh, a statue of Sinberg was erected in his uh, in the city of Bers, the uh, second largest city of Denmark, Aarhus. Uh, the Danish queen was present at the unveiling of the statue. So that, that was, and, and this was uh, widely reported in, in the Danish media. So that was one instance when he uh, became, uh, um, when when the Danish public was reminded of his status. But I, I would say otherwise, it's, it's something that we need to be reminded of every five or every 10 years. It's not like he's not a constant presence in, in the Danish consciousness. Can you describe Nazi Germany's policy and attitude toward the Nanyang massacre? How did Nazi Germany respond? Well, you would say that they responded by ignoring it. Uh, of course, uh, human rights was not very high on, on the Nazi agenda. Uh, so it was simply something that uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Nazi government in Berlin had very little, little interest in. Even though they were alerted to the fact that atrocities were taking place, I mean, the, the Germans on the ground in Nanjing, the uh, embassy staff, they were like old school Germans. They were people who had entered into the bureaucracy prior to uh, Hitler's assumption of power in 1933. They were, you know, people with, um, uh, with more traditional humanitarian values who were horrified by, by the atrocities they were witnessing in the streets of, of Nanjing. And... Uh, Put, put their feelings into reports that they sent back to, to Berlin. But in Berlin, this was completely ignored. Um, it was not something that could be instrumentalized in, in, in Nazi foreign policy. Uh, and also, it, 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 it struck at a time when, uh, when the Germans had not completely decided like um, which horse they were going to bet on in, in East Asia. It was going to be the Chinese or the Japanese. So, I mean, if, if, the, if, the, if the Nazis at the time were 100% Behind the Chinese, they could have used maybe the atrocities uh, for some propaganda uh, purposes in, in in the media. But it, it was the, the 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 Nazi foreign policy towards East Asia was in a state of flux at that time, so it couldn't really inst be instrumentalized one way or the other. So basically, what the Nazis did was to ignore the uh, the the massacre. Can you tell us about the Kixia Temple? Can you describe its history and its architecture? What roles did it play? During the Nanyang massacre, well, it's a it's a Buddhist uh, temple of, of worship uh, just outside uh, of Nanjing, and it's been there for centuries. It's it has a history almost as as long as the history of Buddhism itself in in, in China. So it was one of the places that uh, that the the Chinese uh, civilian Chinese uh, uh, congregated around at the time of, of, of uh, when the when the massacre started. Uh, uh, started uh, erupting in, in the Nanjing area after the J Japanese occupation, like a, a little bit similar to how they set up camp outside the cement factory because they expected to be protected by the uh, uh, German and Danish flags there. That is, um, in, in a similar way, they expected to be protected uh, by the fact that this was um, um, a, re a religious place, like a place of, of worship. Uh, for Buddhists, uh, most likely because uh, the, the Chinese knew that the, that uh, um, a large part, of, number of Japanese, uh, probably a majority of Japanese at the time, were Buddhists themselves and, and probably would respect uh, this religious site and, and not commit atrocities, uh, you know, in in in, um, in an area where 
that that was considered sacred for for, for Buddhists. But um, nevertheless, it, it it turned out that the scattered uh, episodes of violence uh, uh, also took place uh, within the compounds of, of of the temple, carried out by the Japanese, uh, possibly by Japanese who themselves were Buddhists. What was your aim in preparing this book? Well. My main aim was to yeah to to simply uh, tell this story about Sinberg uh, to 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 a wider audience. It's it it um, I think it's it's frustrating that he's only remembered maybe every five or every ten years in Denmark uh, when on when some um, some occasion uh, arises that that suddenly puts him back on on the public agenda. I think he deserves to be more widely understood or more widely known. In Denmark and also in the in the outside world, so so that was like my main aim with with writing this book. In China, he is uh, fairly fairly well known, and uh, people think of him with gratitude because of his uh, his uh, uh, his uh, achievements uh, during the, uh, the the Nanjing massacre. Uh, he's he's mentioned uh, every year on 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 national TV when when the Nanjing massacre is uh, commemorated. Um, he's also mentioned in, in speeches uh, and, and in the official media. So I think in, in China, it's it's not a problem. He's, he's still remembered. But I think in, in the West, including his his country of birth, I think more can be should, should, should be done to, to, to make his story uh, more widely known. What was the red swastika? Can you elaborate? Well, it was the... Um, the local version of the the red cross, uh, just like uh, in the Muslim world, you have the red crescent. In uh, East Asia at the time, you had the red swastika, uh, like a humanitarian um, organization uh, uh, helping uh, people in need with uh, medical uh, medical assistance and sometimes food and clothing. So this swastika is, is a complete coincidence. It's, it's not the Nazi swastika. It's the um, the Buddhist swastika, which actually um, is uh, a mirror image of the of the of the of the Nazi swastika. It it um, it, it points uh, to the to the left, whereas the Nazi swastika points to the right. So, I mean, it, it was a it was a a cause of confusion for some people who thought like you know, or maybe the maybe. Nazi, the Nazi development had has penetrated into East Asia, but um, uh, no, it's it, it was it was a a case of like uh, traditional Buddhist symbolism being used for um, humanitarian purposes. How does your study recontextualize the life and legacy of Oscar Schindler? How were Oscar Schindler and Bernhard Sindberg similar and different in personality, career, temperament, tactics, and methods? Well, I think uh, the similarities are much more striking than the differences. Of course, the differences are, you know, different language, different country, different setting. But I think if we if we uh, look down into the uh, the fundamentals uh, and and the basic story that uh, that both of them reflect, I think the similarities are much more interesting. Uh, we're talking about individuals who uh, who risk everything. To, to help their uh, to help their fellow fellow man and and, and do it uh, in a way when they actually didn't have to uh, where it's like completely their personal choice to do it rather than not to do it 
both of them are, are put in, in this almost existential situation where you know the, you have to make a choice do you want to stand up and 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 defy tyranny and um atrocities uh at the same time risking your own life like do, do you want to make the ethical choice rather than the you know the uh, you could say the sensible choice uh, because ethics and 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 common sense is maybe not the same thing in, in in this particular situation. In this situation, if you do the ethical choice, you may may end up dead. So so they 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 made the ethical choice at at great personal risk, and um, it, but by doing that, show showed themselves to be uh, completely extraordinary individuals, uh, people that you maybe one. One in ten thousand or one in a hundred thousand. So, so I, I think that that's that's what um, that's kind of like the basic similarity between the two. Why is Bernhard Sindberg referred to as Nanjing's Schindler, as opposed to Oscar Schindler being referred to as the Holocaust's Sindberg? I think most importantly, it's uh, simply just a qu question of chronology, like who came first, and uh, uh, since uh, Schindler was widely known before uh, Sinberg ever became known, then it's it's it it's it stands to reason that uh, you would name Sinberg after Schindler and, and and not the other way around. But then it, it also, I mean of course, reflects that uh, the Holocaust, the European Holocaust uh, uh, occupies a much bigger part of um, of of, uh, of the public consciousness than uh, than the um, parallel uh, atrocities taking place in, in China at the hands of the Japanese at about the same time. So uh, it's it, even even without this particular chronology, even if Sinberg had become well-known before Schindler, I don't think um, simply because the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the atrocities carried out by the Japanese in China are relatively unknown in the West, I, I don't think you would ever have been uh, seen a situation where Someone would have published a book saying uh, Schindler, the uh, the Sinberg of, of of Europe, or the Sinberg of Poland. Do you feel that the story of righteous Gentiles, quote unquote righteous Gentiles, in the Second Sino-Japanese War, has been adequately told by historians of World War II and historians of modern China? Why or why not? Actually, I think they are gradually getting the place that they deserve in historiography, both in China. And in the West, uh, I think uh, with, with Chinese historiography, it's always uh, a bit problematic to understand what is really the motives behind uh, history writing. Uh, uh, the Chinese writing history for the sake of it, just to understand better what happened in the past. Are they are they doing it to promote a more modern agenda? So, but but if if you leave the motives behind, uh, and the motives in this particular case could, for example, be to uh, to uh, to kind of like highlight uh, uh, connections between uh, China and uh, certain Western nations in the past to kind of like promote a, um, a friendly diplomatic relationship in in the modern era. But if you look the if you put these uh, motives aside, I would say that uh, the the um, the, uh, the righteous Gentiles, uh, quote unquote. In, in, in China have actually gotten a lot of attention and, and uh, the kind of uh, place in, in, in Chinese history that, that they deserve. And I think we also are seeing this, the same thing in, in, in the West, 
uh, maybe not so much in popular history writing, but also in popular history writing. But uh, if you look at some of the uh, university presses in the West, uh, quite a lot of books have been published uh, over the years about these um, uh, individual Westerners who uh, stood out and uh, assisted the, the Chinese uh, during the Nanjing massacre and, and, and other massacres taking place uh, during the, uh, the war between China and Japan. Um, and also in some in 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 some instances, this has spread out into more popular history 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 writing. Uh, for example, um, there's um, a German businessman called uh, John Rabe, um, who was uh, also in Nanjing in in 1937 and kind of ful uh, fulfilled some of the same functions as as Sinberg did in terms of of uh, protecting the locals. Um, his uh, diary of of the time, which is very dramatic and very detailed has also been published in both uh, German and, and English versions um, and made available to, to a larger public, um, just as uh, his, his uh, history or his story, his biography was the, um, was the subject of a popular movie, I think about a decade ago. So whether you look at the uh, more academic history writing or popular history writing, I think uh, they have also gotten uh, a fair amount of attention in, in the West. Can you describe Japan's air raids against Nanjing? Yeah, it was uh, in, in in many ways the uh, the war in China in the late 1930s was a prelude to World War II in Asia and 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 uh, and, and Europe. Uh, some of the uh, tactics and technologies that you would see um, evolve in in uh, during the um, during the war beginning in 1939, you, you saw that already emerge. In a somewhat on a somewhat smaller scale in in China in the late 1930s, among these uh, air raids on uh, large enemy cities uh, was was one particular instance. Uh, you saw uh, the Japanese uh, carry out air raids uh, to in a somewhat uh, limited uh, way against uh, Chinese targets in in Shanghai and in a much bigger way against the uh, Chinese uh, civilian and military targets in, in the Nanjing area uh, during the fall of 1937, both in order to, um, to um, strike at uh, um, targets of strategic value, uh, targets that if they were, um, if they were, uh, if they were eliminated, they would affect the, the, the Chinese uh, ability to, to carry out war, but also um, war on a more, uh, indiscriminate uh, in a more indiscriminate fashion uh, similarly like terror bombing of, of civilian areas areas of, of Nanjing uh, two aspects of of, um, of uh, air bombing that you would also uh, see uh, repeated in, in in World War II in, in especially in Europe what does your research reveal about women's and children's experiences in the second sino-japanese war well I think it uh, repeats or or confirms uh, one of the uh, really depressing aspects of um, uh, of warfare, uh, especially in, in, in the modern era, the fact that uh, the primary victims of any kind of war is um, are not necessarily um, men of fighting age, men in uniform, but also people behind the front lines, including women and children. Uh, they, they, they were among the... Uh, uh, the the main uh, main casualties, uh, both in Shanghai and Nanjing, and uh, lots of other battles that took place in in China in in the 1930s and 1940s, 
just as, as we have seen it in many other um, contexts, uh, both uh, during World War II and, and, and in, in the post-war years. Where and when was Bernhard Sindberg born? Well, he was born in uh, in Aarhus, the second largest city of Denmark in 1911. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a... Well-known city to people who know uh, Viking history. Uh, Aarhus uh, also existed back a thousand years ago when Vikings were sending out ships to uh, various parts of, of Northern Europe. So it's it's a fairly uh, a cosmopolitan place, uh, post-cosmopolitan in a much more peaceful form in, 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 in the modern era. Um, and it was at the time when, when Sinberg grew up, it was also a rapidly evolving industrial city uh, with a big commercial harbor. So I think uh, one of the reasons why he became so interested in traveling was that he, he, he saw all these ships arriving from all over the world, uh, bringing uh, exotic cargo from uh, all corners of the planet. So, yeah, I think uh, that his formative experience growing up in, in, in Aarhus uh, is, is, is of some significance. What were the most of impactful events in Bernhard Sindberg's early life? I think if I were to point at, at one particular aspect, I think it was his relationship to his father, uh, Johannes uh, Sindberg. Uh, he uh, inherited some uh, very interesting uh, Characteristics from from his father, uh, one of them being his uh, his uh, a strong sense of justice, a sense of like good and evil, and a sense of the necessity of, of helping people who were worse off than one one oneself. At the same time, he also inherited a very um, a hot temper from his father. Uh, if you look back at, at at history, like look at, at some of the uh, newspaper reports from. Uh, uh, from Aarhus, uh, his his city of birth in in the years uh, when he grew up, his his father is is mentioned fairly often and always um, in uh, uh, always in, in in some context uh, where where, um, uh, where some some kind of controversy is is, is involved. Like he, his father was uh, in the uh, dairy business and also a cheese vendor for a while, and he was in constant. Uh, uh, constant rivalry with um, other cheese vendors and other dairies, um, sometimes involved involved in uh, rather acrimonious debates in, in in the local newspapers. So there was this like hot temper that ran in the family, and also um, was very well developed in in Sinberg himself, and. Uh, I think was one of the main reasons why when he found himself in Nanjing in 1937. He didn't always uh, think about what was best for himself, but he followed his emotions uh, much more than, than other people would have done. And um, making these uh, choices that, with the benefit of hindsight, we can, see, we can see that they were the right ethical choices, but not necessarily the choices that a person um, governed more by his uh, common sense would, would have taken. Can you tell us about Bernhard Sinberg's adulthood prior to his sojourn in China? Um, he he was uh, yeah he he wanted to see the world uh, definitely and um, at the time there wasn't really there weren't really many ways of, of seeing the world as as a young man with uh, no special education other than becoming a, a sailor so 
Um, for several years prior to ending up in in, in China, he, he was um, he worked on on various ships on in different parts of of the world, and also and well another way to 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 see the world was to to join the the foreign legion, which of course he did, but uh, very soon uh, tired of of the um, the harsh discipline and uh, the North African uh, climate, I guess. So he uh, he deserted from the union uh, from the legion after a few months and uh, managed to uh, get back uh, from North Africa to, to Europe. Um, yeah, so, so I think that was like, yeah, that, that was some of his, his formative experiences, the, the life at sea and also the life in the Foreign Legion, which opened some doors for him later on when he, when he moved to China, where um, jobs were available for people with some kind of uh, military background. What became of Bernhard Sinberg after World War II? Well, that, that's interesting and a little bit sad, I would say that you know, just as he emerged from the gray, gray, great gray mass of humanity to become uh, a great heroic individual in uh, 1937, 1938, when, when the circumstances were just right, in exactly the same way, he kind of like receded back into this great um, formless mass of humanity after, where after his um, his. Uh, uh, his achievements in, in Nanjing. Uh, he was completely average before Nanjing and he returned to becoming completely average afterwards. Uh, not, not, that he, not that he lived a completely uneventful life, like he, uh, he was a sailor after, um, after his experiences in Nanjing and, and sailed the world and probably saw lots of interesting places, but he never again did anything quite as remarkable as what he, uh, he had uh, uh, done in, in Nanjing in 1937, 1938. And he was also never really, uh, um, he was never really credited with his enormous achievement in Nanjing. For example, uh, I can give an example in, uh, I think, 1950, he uh, visited his uh, city of birth, Aarhus, and he was interviewed by a local newspaper, which um, asked a lot of questions about his life at sea and what it was like to you know, be a captain on board of a foreign ship but not a single word about what he had done in Nanjing. It was, it was completely forgotten at the time um, and continued like that until he died in 1983 in, in, in Los Angeles, uh, completely forgotten. Uh, there was no obituary in the newspapers, uh, nothing at all. And he probably um, didn't have the imagination to, to, to think that one day, several years after his death, his, he would become famous in, in China. Who was Tang Shengzhi? Why is he noteworthy? Uh, he was the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the commander of the uh, Chinese forces in, in the Nanjing area um, just before the uh, capture by the uh, Japanese army. He's interesting mostly because he was kind of like the, the, the Chinese fall guy. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek, the, the Chinese leader at the time, had decided that... Um, he wasn't going to waste all his best uh, troops uh, defending Nanjing since Nanjing was going to fall no matter what. He wasn't even going to put up a big symbolic fight to attract attention. He just wanted to like pull out as many troops as he could before Nanjing fell to the Japanese. And um, so, so he, he took the, um, the general he could um, afford to lose the most and put him in charge of, 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 the, uh, of, the, of the Chinese army. In, in Nanjing, uh, basically because someone had to be in charge. So why not take the least capable of his officers and put him in, in that position? So that's his claim to history, I would say, that 
um, he was picked for this rather prominent role, not because of his abilities, but rather for his lack of ability. Who was Karl Gunther? Why is he significant? Uh, that was the uh, German supervisor that was sent to the cement factory at the same time as uh, Simberg was sent there as uh, supervisor and representative of the uh, Danish uh, Danish company that had invested in in, in the plant. So he was um, he was uh, uh, he was basically staying at, at the cement plant at the same time as, as Simberg arriving uh, with Simberg just a few days before the uh, Japanese takeover of the, of the Nanjing area. The interesting part is, uh, the interesting thing is that uh, Sinberg and, and Gunther uh, very soon developed uh, a pretty fierce uh, rivalry. Uh, Gunther was uh, was formerly uh, the uh, Sinberg's superior. He had uh, much better skills. Uh, he spoke Chinese fluently. He had a PhD in engineering. Um, he had uh, great connections with the uh, Chinese uh, political and uh, commercial establishment. But still, what, what, what he lacked was personality. Uh, he didn't have this inner quality that, that Sinberg had, the, the things that made Sinberg stand out in the hour of danger. So um, whereas like Sinberg was incredibly proactive and stepped out of the uh, factory gate um, again and again to protect the, uh, the Chinese in the refugee camp outside, uh, Gunda most of the time was uh, holding himself up in his office inside the factory, um, gradually developing uh, a severe grudge against Sinberg for, for, for stealing all the limelight and eventually uh, sending a letter to um, Sinberg's employer, uh, which, uh, as far as I can see from the sources, essentially was the reason why Sinberg was uh, eventually removed from his position at the cement factory. Were there any other prominent and notable humanitarians in China from other Scandinavian countries that Sinberg can be compared to? Not from any Scandinavian countries, but uh, there was the uh, German businessman uh, I mentioned earlier, John Rabe, who uh, who, who also uh, did uh, did, lot, uh, did a lot uh, at, at great personal risk to, uh, to protect uh, uh, Chinese civilians. But otherwise, I would say that most of the um, the uh, so-called uh, righteous Gentiles in in China at the time were uh, from the English-speaking world, so either British, Canadian, or American. Can you tell us about them? Can you tell us about the Brits, Americans, Canadians, Australians, and other well, that, Anglo's who yeah, made significant contributions? There, there were quite a few, but I think uh, yeah, to mention one. And, and each of them deserves a book of its own and, and to some extent have also gotten that book. But to, to mention one, uh, I think Mini Votrin, who was a, um, the head of a, um, an educational institution for, for Chinese women in Nanjing at the time, um, she, she, she deserves a special mention. Uh, she, she did the same as as the rest, um, protecting Chinese civilians against the Japanese, trying to to uh, uh, negotiate with the Japanese to try and uh, 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 mitigate their behavior towards uh, the Chinese civilians. Uh, but at the same time, uh, really paying a, a great personal price for, for her courage. Uh, what she saw in Nanjing uh, changed her uh, permanently, uh, made her 
uh, a much sadder person. Um, and eventually, uh, a few years uh, down the down the road, after after the um, after the events in Nanjing uh, caused her to to commit suicide. So she's an example of of how heroism in war sometimes uh, comes at at great personal cost, uh, which also should not be forgotten. What challenges did you experience locating and interpreting your sources in this work? Well, I think the biggest challenge was that the, the sources were in were so geographically dispersed. Uh, some of the best sources are in China, uh, but also there were some great sources at the um, at the University of Texas, Austin, which has uh, a Sinbert collection. So not only did I have to go to China repeatedly to uh, research Sinbert, I also had to go to to, to Texas and um, re read the, the, the sources to his life there. And of course, um, quite a few sources are also in, in uh, at, at archives in Denmark. But uh, yeah, I would say the, the biggest the biggest challenge was the um, was the need to to travel to Many different parts of the world to 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 piece together the uh, uh, the details of his life. Who was Philip Pembroke Stephen? Well, he was he was uh, one of the star journalists of, of the of the era. He was a, a British uh, reporter who had made his name uh, reporting about uh, uh, the um, the um, upheavals of of Europe in the in the 1930s. He had uh, traveled to uh, Spain. To cover the civil war for British uh, news media, and had uh, become uh, had become something of, of a celebrity uh, in the, in that respect, um, even before the uh, outbreak of the Sino-Japanese War. But the interesting part was that uh, once the uh, Sino-Japanese War broke out in 1937, he was considered so important and, and so valuable for his employers in 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 uh, in London that he was. Um, he was put on a, a chartered plane, chartered just to take him from Europe to uh, to East Asia uh, as fast as possible, so he could he would cover the war. The, the reason why he's mentioned in in my book is that uh, Sinberg became his assistant uh, during the Battle of Shanghai and uh, became also something of, of a friend uh, during these uh, dangerous months. They. Um, Pembroke Stevens and Sinberg developed a, a fairly uh, tight personal relationship, and uh, when when uh, Stevens died in at the end of, of the Battle of Shanghai, actually on on the very last day of, of battle, November eleventh of all days, uh, it was it was also a great personal shock to to Sinberg, and probably one of the reasons why Sinberg uh, developed this uh, pretty um, I would say anti-Japanese uh, stand regarding uh, regarding the war can you tell us about shanghai's international settlement well it was uh, a piece of the west right in the middle of china uh, it was a part of shanghai that had been uh, taken over by the uh, westerners uh, in the um, uh, in the second half of the uh, uh, of the 1800s and um, basically uh, acted as a base of uh, Western commercial uh, penetration into into the rest of China. So it was basically where where the wealthy Western merchants um, uh, uh, set up shop and and also dis, um, settled down with with the families uh, beginning in in the um, late eighteen hundreds. Uh, 
and uh, gradually developed uh, this whole area into uh, one of the most uh, uh, most prosperous parts of, of, of not just China, but, but of the entire world. Uh, if you wanted to make a fortune fast, then Shanghai was one of the places to do it. It was also a place where you could uh, very easily um, get out of luck and, 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 uh, and end up at the bottom of society. So it was a, it was a bit of a, a Klondike, but a very luxurious Klondike. How much is known of the life of Johannes Sindberg, Bernhard's father? Well, uh, there are bits and pieces that you can find in, in various archives. Uh, uh, in Denmark, uh, church records, for example, if you want to find out where he was born, where he was baptized, where he was married. Um, but also because he was kind of like a fairly public figure who had these uh, very uh, public arguments with his uh, rivals in, in, in the local newspapers, you can also follow his um, his life uh, simply by, by reading some of the old newspapers. And also, um, he, he wrote an interesting uh, series of articles, actually, after Sinberg um, had left Nanjing in 1938 and uh, returned to Europe. He, he's right, he wrote a, a series of articles about how he, um, the moment he knew that his son had returned from Asia uh, on board a ship that was bound for, for Italy, he uh, immediately went on a train to Italy to uh, to meet his son um, uh, the moment he stepped off the, off the ship. And uh, uh, so this, it's a bit of a travelogue about how they travel uh, through Europe uh, and, and get, get, go back to Denmark uh, eventually after a few weeks of, of traveling. So, so he, uh, I would say that um, he, he's a fairly, um, his, his life is fairly well documented, especially when you compare with other uh, average Danes at the time. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this work? Well, at the moment, I'm working on a book about the Greenland in, in World War II. Um, actually, I'm, I'm finishing the, the chapters uh, as we speak, more or less, and it will be published uh, later this year uh, in English and also in, in a Danish version. So, yeah, that's that's where most of my um, that how I spent most of my time and have spent most of my time in in the past few months. Uh, once that is that that is completed, I plan to return to Asia and and write more about China and Japan in in the first half of the twentieth century. Sounds marvelous and phenomenal. Thank you. As we end our dialogue today, I'm signing off as your host on the New Books in History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Peter Harmson. He holds a PhD in China studies. He has been the Asian correspondent for the Danish weekly newspaper, Weekenda Wiesen. Today I've been discussing Peter Harmson's newly published book, Bernhard Sindberg, The Schindler of Nanjing, published in Havertown, Pennsylvania by Casemate Publishers, 2024. Thank you very much.